Hello, everybody. I'm Jakub Dettori, and this is the FDI podcast. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, has made of sanctions a distinctive element of his foreign policy. In fact, sanctions appear to have become his foreign policy weapon of choice. He used them against China, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, and others, causing geopolitical backlash and more than a headache for foreign investors around the globe. Matt Horsman, here with me in our studio in London to discuss ways for foreign investors to mitigate sanctions risks as much as possible. Matt is a partner with law firm Prisbury and an expert in uh, compliance with US and international sanctions and uh, international law in general. Welcome uh, to the show, Matt. Right. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I guess it's been uh, uh, pretty busy lately since uh, for you since Donald Trump rose to power, right? Yes, it's not been uh, it's been it's been a heyday for sanctions lawyers. <laughs> so tell us, so what uh, the level of aggressiveness uh, of uh, the, the 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 White House uh, through economic sanctions has has uh, skyrocketed since Donald Trump uh, entered the, the rose to 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 the presidency? Uh, so you want to tell us, give a brief overview of what has uh, changed. Uh, from his uh, predecessors and how he's using uh, sanctions as part as a key element of his foreign policy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're absolutely correct that sanctions has become the primary, if, or if not one of the primary weapons of the Trump administration in foreign policy terms. They've used sanctions uh, extensively in major number of geographies um, and against many different situations. Just as one you know, data point that the number of individuals and companies that are on the U.S. sanctions list, the so-called specially designated nationals, has more than doubled since the Trump administration came to power. Um, they're using it very actively. Um, and it's still a concern, particularly American companies and American in investors know how to handle this. But I think the impact this is having on foreign businesses is has grown you know, significantly. For example, um, knowing which companies you can deal with as right. you're for if you're an investor sitting in London you're not a US citizen but sanctions do have an impact across the board whether that's you know your investments in Russia Iran Venezuela uh, I, I can't imagine you have too many investors looking at North Korea but these different places um, there are US regimes that do impact on what you can do sure and actually EOS introduced the uh new elements or anyway elements that were not really very common in the past like uh, exports control sanctions or also like secondary sanctions targeting non-US companies which were in place also before uh, he came into power but is and his administration uh, have been very committed yeah. when it comes to enforcing them uh, but let me let me let me um start um, digging a bit deeper, um, talking about uh, China-US uh, relations and this uh, unfolding uh, tra trade feud, if you yeah. want, between the two countries. As mentioned, uh, there are no uh, typically traditional treasury sanctions uh, slapped on uh, Chinese companies or individuals, but there are uh, President Trump introduced export control sanctions uh, that have got some new elements here and there and are uh, definitely differ from uh, from the past. So you want yeah. to, to, to give us yeah an idea of what it means really for, for anybody dealing with China? Yeah, absolutely. That There's, as you pointed out, there's sort of three big areas where the Trump administration has changed, and that's the export control being number one, the use of the Global Magnitsky Act, number two, and the use of these so-called secondary sanctions. But taking the export controls first, um, 
a lot of people don't realize there's Treasury Department sanctions, but there's also Commerce Department export controls, which are, in effect, sanctions. And these are limits on what U.S. technology can be exported overseas. These are usually control technologies or dual-use technologies um, that are highly technologically advanced or, or could have a military application. But it doesn't just limit U.S. companies exporting these uh, equipment overseas. It limits... Uh, say, European companies who integrate American technology into their equipment or their widget or their technology or software and then exporting it. So with China, what the Trump administration has done is not sanction them directly in the traditional way like with Iran or Russia, but has started imposing export restrictions on U.S. technology. You've seen this in the Huawei case is, is the most prominent one where U.S. companies have been limited in what they can sell to Huawei, and that's had a not major knock-on effect, just not just in in the U.S. but also the glo- Huawei's global supply chain. Um, you've seen it uh, recently with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, where there's been, uh, you know, technology restrictions on the export of U.S. technology to companies in China that that have issues uh, or operate in Xinjiang. Um, and this has become a major tool. It's it's sort of a corollary, corollary to the trade war that's going on between the U.S. and China, and as a way to sort of hit it hit at China, um, the, the, for the Trump administration to hit at China in a way that's not sanctioned directly. That doesn't mean the U.S. doesn't sanction China uh, Chinese companies, and they have sanctioned Chinese companies for their dealings with Iran uh, or North Korea, particularly in the energy side or the shipping side. But this is the they've avoided a kind of frontal sanctions assault and have using export controls right. as a way to do this. And I imagine that for non-U.S. companies, yep. uh, this this means a big effort in yep. trying to track uh, each single suppliers along their supply chain and uh, being sure that uh, they are not in breach of these export yes. control sanctions, right? Exactly. A European company, for example, that imports U.S. technology, integrates into their widgets and software, uh, has to be very careful where that technology then goes um, and be mindful of these export controls. We see these mistakes made innocent mistakes oftentimes made all the time um, of where they're, you know, moving equipment, say, from one country to another. You know, maybe it's it was in uh, Vietnam and now they're moving it to China and all of a sudden there's an export control violation because they didn't realize what had been commingled together in, in their in their equipment or their software. Um, you know, the other area where this is coming up, um, if you're an investor and you're investing in a large company with has a big integrated supply chain, and understanding the risks and how how much quality control there is in the export control management um, of that company, because these end up, you know, just like banks have to focus on anti-money laundering controls. Um, if you're investing in a large manufacturer or a large software developer that has a lot of supply chains, or say AI being one of the biggest areas, you really have to be careful to make sure the the company's managing its supply chain well. Right, and so how thoroughly. Uh are U.S. authorities willing to enforce these sanctions? And, you know, what is the ju- the, the, ju- the jurisdiction there for them to enforce uh, sanctions like export control sanctions on European companies? How can they legally uh, enforce them on companies that are not U.S. companies? Yeah. So there are the main penalties, say, levers of, you know, influence the U.S. has here are there's financial penalties, but also uh, being denied the right to receive U.S. exports. So if you're caught and seen as violating these export control rules, uh, you may not, you may be cut off from the U.S. markets. Um, And the U.S. has been enforcing these for years against European companies. This was seen most uh, actively in sort of the defense supply chain space where um, U.S. U.S. companies were importing things from 
Europe, but Europe wasn't controlling, European companies weren't controlling uh, the origin of their technology. And, and so then European companies started being fined and sanctioned by the U.S. Commerce Department. And the State Department also has authorities here when it comes to purely defensive equipment or military equipments. Okay, so and obviously uh, the, when it comes to, to China, U.S., uh, uh trade uh, trade tensions also the trade tariffs were you know hit the headlines you know for many months this uh, tit for tough exchange of uh, trade tariffs between uh, Washington and Beijing uh, it's interesting speaking to uh, different sources around the globe uh, there seems to be a perception that there are ways to get around these tariffs through for example the use of uh, free zones um, example a country uh, that could have in Latin America that could have a bilateral trade agreement with uh, uh, the, 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 the U.S. They are trying to speak to Chinese investors to lure them into uh, building up a factory in their free trade zone, uh, special economic zones, uh, to then uh, re-export their goods uh, onto, onto the U.S. markets. But also countries in Asia, they are trying to do the same with American investors, telling them if you want to get around Chinese sanctions, set up a factory here, you know, set up a local branch, a subsidiary in this country, uh, in these special economic zones, you get all the incentives, you can also re-export uh, duty-free to, to, to China. Uh, does it make sense? Do you think that these this mechanisms to go to get around sanctions can, can work? Well, sure. The, I mean, these sort of mechanisms can be useful for getting around trade restrictions, uh, you know, and tariffs. I mean, you see this as sort of changing the rules of origin. If you're adding value in these different free zones, yes, you can effectively rebrand a Chinese product, a Vietnamese product or, or otherwise. Um, but that really has to do with customs rules more than anything. Yeah. In terms of sanctions, there is not really evasion by, um, by relocating your manufacturing. What sanctions look at is uh, who is the owner? Who's the operator? You know, who who are the parties involved? So if a sanction, you know, let's say a Russian oligarch who's been sanctioned uh, is changing his factory location from from outside of Moscow to um, Czech Republic, that doesn't change the fact that those products are still sanctioned, sure. or, or or you you know, if you're an investor, you can't invest in that company. So the that's one of the things you have to look at is you know overly complicated structuring tends to be a red flag when you're looking at sanctions and, and, and let, separating out the issue of sort of customs mitigation versus sanctions mitigation. Absolutely. So obviously, yeah, they are part of the same, uh, in a way, foreign policy effort, yeah. but they are two very different things, uh, trade tariffs and, uh, you know, more frontal sanctions, treasury sanctions yeah. or uh, exports control um, sanctions. Um, another, obviously, very aggressive uh, sanctions program was is the program against uh, uh, Iran. Uh, since the, the United States withdrew from uh, the nuclear deal, uh, they ramped up sanctions against uh, Tehran and um, primary and uh, secondary sanctions. And actually, we have, we have already mentioned this uh, before, but in this case, uh, you know, the, 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 the focus on secondary sanctions seems to be key. Also because uh, it's, inter it's interesting to see that during, uh, in those couple of years when uh, the U.S. were on board uh, the nuclear deal, um, still American investors didn't really invest in Iran because still primary sanctions were in place for them. So there were still very high restrictions for American US-based yeah. companies to invest into Iran, um, which was not the case, obviously, for European yeah. companies. Whereas now, um, the US reintroduced 
um, secondary sanctions, which means that they are trying to enforce their, their sanctions program also on uh, non-US um, companies. So tell us more about this and how European companies anyway, in, in a way can deal with this or should deal with this also in a situation where European countries, the European Union, but the other countries that were part of the deal, the UK, Germany and France are trying to set up a mechanism or a scheme to, to circumvent these sanctions? Yeah. I mean, the short answer is uh, dealing with Iran from a U.S. sanctions perspective is incredibly dangerous, even for non-U.S. companies. Um, the U.S. has made uh, imposing aggressive sanctions, so-called maximum pressure against Iran, a key foreign policy plank, and is enforcing it. Um, there, if you're a European company and want to trade with Iran, you're you Nothing you can do can go through the U.S. system, you know, no U.S. banks, none of that. But even avoiding the U.S. system, if you're not careful, looks like sanctions evasion, which is punishable itself and can can attract secondary sanctions. So really making a choice to deal with Iran, you have to manage the fact that you may never be totally cut off from the U.S. system um, because of you know, the way you have to structure your own products, but also, you you know, you may not be ever allowed back into the U.S. banking system if yep. you're not careful. Um, and it's a risk that's, that really has to be assessed. Um, lots of lawyers, you know, plug for us, but, you know, lots of lawyer, lawyers have to look at it. And I think more, most times you're going to find it's a bad idea that, that if you're worried about the sanctions uh, impact in the U.S., if you're worried about being, you know, having access to the U.S. market and the U.S. banking system and, frankly, the global financial system, um, dealing with Iran is incredibly challenging. And, you know, the European Union has, you know, passed this blocking legislation that's supposed to protect, so-called, you know, protect European companies from U.S. sanctions. I think the reality is America doesn't care um, and and will still go after that. And then it becomes a bit of a, you know, foreign policy fight between uh, European and, and the EU and the U.S. But um, it is not a uh, sort of safe bet that's what, to think that the European Union is going to protect a, a business uh, from U.S. sanctions. The EU, the EU is trying this special purpose vehicle to at least allow some types of transactions to yes, go through. If I'm not mistaken. Right. But that's also fairly limited. I, I, it hasn't – it's taken far too long than everyone ever thought to launch it. I don't even think it's fully operational yet. But also I believe it's limited to sort of humanitarian goods, medicines and food, um, which, you know – is good for a small part of the market, but not for most of it. Um, so it's not a catch-all. You can't use it to sell cars to Iran. Um, and and so, you're, again, you're, you're falling out into the uh, global market. And I think that's what you're finding is that the banks, even the non-U.S. banks, are, are effectively the enforcement arm of the U.S. government. Um, they don't want to process these transactions relating to Iran. So even if what you, you you come up with some type of transaction that isn't a violation of U.S. sanctions, the banks themselves may not even want to go anywhere near it because they don't. It's not worth it for them to process an Iran transaction, even one that may not violate sanctions, because they don't want to deal with the risk of being cut off from the U.S. system. Absolutely. And actually, there are a couple of uh, big examples of uh, banks, uh, French banks, that have been uh, heavily sanctioned for their dealings with uh, not just Iran and uh, Cuba, but, you know, an overall uh, sort of attitude uh, in a breach of sanctions, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. BNP Paribas uh, and Societe Generale, billion-dollar sanctions. Oh, yeah, billions of dollars in fines. It's not worth it. I mean, this was uh, – and the U.S. understands this, and the Treasury Department fans out around the world and talks to these banks and 
explains to them the consequences of processing these types of transactions. So it you know becomes just not worth it for them. There's not a big enough business um, to even necessarily invest in a sort of high-end compliance system to figure out what could work and what cannot work. It's just sure. it, it's easier just to drop the wall. And when it comes to to business, obviously, I guess it's a no-brainer. Uh, you know, the risk of losing the U.S. market to access uh, the Iranian market. It sounds very cynical, but from a business yeah. perspective, probably the answer is, uh, is pretty straightforward. Absolutely. There's plenty of other countries to make money in. Yeah. Um, Matt, a very last question. Um, Huawei. Um, again, um, this is this is a bit more kind of, I think that the line here is a bit grayer in a way that there is a big uh, policy push to 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 prevent Huawei, but not just Huawei, other Chinese uh, 5G equipment suppliers to develop their 5G networks in Europe as elsewhere. Um, but there are many countries that are still trying to to move forward because Huawei has got like a bigger competitive edge in terms of technology vis-a-vis any other supplier and countries they don't want to to miss on the 5G uh, opportunity which is should be should be kind of backbone of things like uh, industry 4.0 uh, the internet of things and so on and so forth but in this case as far as i'm aware there is no not, not a clear sanctions program uh, at least outside the US i know that obviously Huawei is uh, is has got big troubles doing business in the in the in the US if not has been uh, totally blacklisted uh, but give us a bit of background here and uh, whether or not companies and uh, authorities elsewhere outside the US uh, should uh, should uh, should feel their hands free when it when dealings with Huawei right i think there's sort of three ways to look at this as as the sort of the importer of Huawei technology the exporter of Huawei technology and and the investor in Huawei um if you're someone who's selling into Huawei uh you know chips routers whatever widget you or software you're selling to Huawei if you're part of the US supply chain if you've got US equipment as we talked about earlier around export controls export. you have to be really careful red uh, um big red flag big investigation sort of figure out what what you're doing and and, and uh what you're allowed to do if you're you know a german company importing Huawei technology for either your company or if you're the state for that matter thinking about you know letting giving Huawei access to your build your 5G network um you know that's another question uh, the US has made it a foreign policy priority and that's going to expand i think if you if you start seeing countries really go big on Huawei technology in critical infrastructure the US may deploy other policy weapons whether it's sanctions export controls uh other other things that the US has in its arsenal um to sort of protest that to try to block it to try to undermine it um cutting off financing from US banks all these other things um you could see the way the US has talked you know tried to handle russian pipelines as an example of of the kind of tools it would deploy against huawei um and look these country, countries whether it's the uk or germany or elsewhere have to make fundamental national security uh, assessments about whether huawei is safe um and i you know i'm not a tech expert so i can't answer that but these are the other ones the third one i'd be looking at is you know if you're an investor in huawei um it's the same question i'd be asking if you're investing in any chinese tech company is what are the what's your potential exposure to sanctions and export controls it's one thing to say oh this is a cool company and they make a interesting product and there's 1.3 you know, billion possible customers i want to invest in it and maybe their core technology or their core product is perfectly benign and fine but chinese companies are money of our state owned their state influence they're in so many different corners is there something else they're doing are they operating in some geography do they have a subsidiary that actually is 
carrying out some kind of trade with North Korea or they have some subsidiary that's you know handling an oil trade with Iran that you have to be worried about. So I think understanding the holistics of a Chinese company about what it does and where it operates is so important as an investor doing your due diligence because you might think you're buying, you know, some cool, you know, solar technology, but then you find out, oh, you know, there's a subsidiary manufacturing that solar technology in a no-no country, you know, from the U.S. perspective. So bottom line of all these, uh, if you're dealing, see if you got any doubt, don't forget to call your lawyer. Absolutely. Or moving forward. Well, Matt, thank you very much for this very insightful uh, discussion. Uh, where people can find you, where people can uh, find your law firm, how yeah. people can get in touch. Sure. We're, I'm Matthew Orsman. I'm at uh, Pillsbury Winthrop. We're a global law firm with 21 offices around the world. I'm just down the street and uh, from you and uh, by, by the Bank of England. But, um, you know, please find us at PillsburyLaw.com. And my name- Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Again, Matthew Orsman. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Matt. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You can find all our podcasts on fdiintelligence.com slash podcasts or on iTunes and Acast. Thanks. 